is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. This week, making its case, the RAF finally fights back. If you're going to go off and get Bin Laden, close down people laying IEDs, all of these need a strike arm. And how did the Afghan hostage rescue go so badly wrong? At night in Afghanistan uh, against very, very violent, suicidal and determined people. Headlines. The Prime Minister's meeting America's top general in Afghanistan. The death of British aid worker Linda Norgrove in an apparently botched US rescue operation is likely to dominate talks between David Cameron and General David Petraeus. Labour's demanding an explanation of Mr Cameron's decision to appoint his own military adviser. Downing Street's insisting Royal Marine Colonel Jim Morris will not undermine the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir David Richards. The Chilean miners rescued after more than two months underground are resting. Officials say they're in good health considering their ordeal. One of the 33 men has pneumonia. Greater Manchester Police has made more than a thousand postings on the micro-blogging site Twitter today. It's listing every single incident reported through the day to show how busy officers are. Liverpool's American owners have gone to a court in the US to try to stop moves to force them out of Anfield. George Gillette and Tom Hicks are battling to avoid the club's sale. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's called Britain's troops true action heroes. The Governor of California has been to Wellington Barracks in London meeting soldiers from 1st Battalion, the Grenadier Guards. The RAF has launched its fight back against the deep cuts it's apparently facing in the Strategic Defence and Security Review, but it may be far too late. The National Security Council met again this week, apparently approving changes that could see dozens of jets scrapped, bases lost and thousands of personnel. It looks like the RAF will be the big loser in the Defence Review, but with just days now until it's made public, a senior officer's warned the cuts could leave the UK vulnerable to attack. In a private speech to MPs, Air Marshal Timo Anderson, who's Director General of the Military Aviation Authority, said it would be harder for a smaller RAF to defend Britain from a terrorist attack from the air. Jonathan Beale is the BBC's defence correspondent. Uh, Jonathan, the speech warns it would be a mistake for the RAF to bear the brunt of the spending cuts. What do you make of it? Well, I think it, it, it's a powerful argument in favour of the RAF. Um, the question is, as you say, whether it's come too late or not. But um, he made the case for the RAF, first of all, in operations, current operations in Afghanistan, which not a lot of people have mentioned. People have been focusing on the army in Afghanistan, and that's partly because the army has been, I'd say, better at its PR than, than the RAF. But uh, he says that uh, the RAF is the glue that holds that campaign together. Uh, he then talks about the security of the homeland, warning uh, that if we don't invest in air defences, then it would be difficult to respond to a 9 11 uh, type of attack. He also uh, mentions the Falklands, the importance of uh, the typhoons defending the Falklands there, humanitarian assistance operations across the world, uh, and also uh, highlights the, the dangers of not investing in air defences at a time when countries like big powers like Russia and China are doing just that. And he says that the RAF is value for money, even though these planes are expensive. In the long term, uh, they do prove their worth, as in the case, he says, of the tornadoes. In the run-up to the findings of this review, we haven't really seen the RAF putting its case publicly. Why do you think that is? 
Well, I think just because they haven't been making their case publicly, it doesn't mean that they haven't been making their case privately. And indeed, um, you know, I know that the RAF has been arguing against some of the uh, uh, severer cuts that have been mentioned, for example, scrapping the entire Tornado GR4 fleet or the Harrier fleet, um, because they say that those are essential uh, to operations in Afghanistan. Uh, I think that you have to say, though, the RAF hasn't been as, as good at the PR game uh, in terms of uh, giving leaks to the media, say the army has, uh, because the army does seem to have escaped the brunt of the cuts, uh, at least until 2015, when uh, combat operations in Afghanistan will be over. So I think they are playing catch-up. And, of course, as far as the Navy's concerned, the focus there has been on the two new aircraft carriers, and they've mounted a vigorous campaign to keep those two aircraft carriers. And that seems to be, uh, to some extent, working. So uh, if you're going to keep those carriers, you're going to have to make cuts somewhere, and that's why people are focused on the RAF playing catch-up, as you put it, but do you think it's all come a little too late, or can they have any influence now? Well, I think it's interesting. If you go back to the leaked letter from Liam Fox, he did warn about losing air air reconnaissance planes like the Nimrod MR4A, which uh, have yet to come into service. Uh, He mentioned that specifically. So uh, clearly the concerns, uh, you know, have been highlighted already about the cuts to the RAF. I think that um, they are still making the case. And let's let's be honest, not all the decisions have been made. Some of them have been, but they're still working out the detail before they publish uh, the defence review on the 19th of October. I think that it's possible that they can stave off some of the cuts. But to be honest, you you would say that the RAF is going to be one of the losers in this uh, strategic defence review, uh, simply because so much money is being spent on those aircraft carriers. We know that they are finding it difficult to afford the planes that are meant to go on those carriers, which are meant to go to the RAF as well, the Joint Strike Fighter. And the expectation is that uh, a fleet of what was going to be 138 JSF is going to be cut to about 50. So there will be huge cuts for the RAF. I don't think it'll be the only loser, but I think that uh, it'll probably be one of the bigger losers. The BBC's defence correspondent, Jonathan Beale. Well, earlier I spoke to Andrew Brooks, who's director of the Air League. I asked him about the impact of the likely cuts on the RAF. You can get rid of people. You can scrap, say, for example, a great chunk of Harriers. You can scrap a great chunk of, of Tornadoes. They're not really going to, if you like, make a great serious dent in, in, in a deficit of $38 billion. I mean, for example, if you got rid of every tornado we had, it would still only save about $7.5 billion over the next five or six years. You end up with nothing much more than an air defence of Great Britain outfit when it comes to protecting against, if you like, uh, 9-11s. Um, that's all you can do, defend, defend, defend. And you've not got, if you like, an attacking arm. And we all know you can't win a football game with 11 goalkeepers. You need the strike arm if you're going to go off and get Bin Laden. If you want to go and close down people laying IEDs in front of the army, if you want to look ahead and and, and kill people waiting in, in ambush, all of these need a strike arm. Um, of one sort or another. And the army, I think, knows that the tornadoes currently in Afghanistan are providing excellent reconnaissance and strike support. And, Andrew, do you believe that the RAF should be capable of doing all those things that you outlined there? Well, this is back to basic. What is the exam question? The exam question is, what game is the UK in? Are we in a 
world power, an organisation that doesn't just sit in its own little island, pull up the drawbridge and say, Yabu, it goes and helps with famine relief, it provides disaster relief, it provides an element of security in places where they want security. Which game are we in? And I've yet to hear, the, 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 if you like, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office articulate a vision. But if they want the UK to still punch above its weight, if they still want to be a primary power in the UN, if they're still willing to contribute over and above the call of duty whenever the US sends out an invitation or the UN sends an invitation or the EU sends an invitation, then we need to have the forces to do it. But don't please say to all the hard men and women in the services, we are still strutting our stuff on the world stage. We're not going to give you the wherewithal to do the job properly because I think that would be, um, well, it would be dishonest. And how is morale within the RF at the moment? Fragile. I mean, it's understandable. I'm sure it is in the Navy and the Army as well. I only know the Air Force. But every time somebody comes out with, oh, this is going to be scrapped or that's going to be scrapped, the, whichever base has got them must be under great threat and fear and, 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 and worry. Um, and the chief of air staff is, knows this. I mean, he's been out to his people and said, look, we're fighting for you. You'll hear a lot of rumours. You'll hear a lot of, 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 of tittle-tattle. Don't believe a word of it because nothing's been decided. But people have grown up. The, you know, the Secretary of State has said, I have to save $38 billion. And they're all not stupid. They know very well the RAF is going to have to take its share. The only question is, how big is that slice of the cake they're going to take? We know that the Army's been lobbying intensively for months now ahead of the defence review. Do you think the RAF has uh, put its energy behind it a little too late? Well, I mean, the Chief has been quite clear from the outset that he's not going to get into a slanging match. This has to be a UK decision and the Air Force isn't in the business of sniping the other two services. And I do believe that the Chief, the First Sea Lord and the Chief of General Staff are also not sniping against. It doesn't mean there aren't people out there, retired generals, retired admirals, who aren't doing the sniping. The question is, you know, do, do, you want, do we want more retired air marshals going out there sniping away? Will it do any good? I, I don't think it will. At the end of the day, this, this is going to be a decision that's going to have to be made. What worries most of us is it's not going to be made on the basis of foreign, uh, Commonwealth, UK, industrial, strategic decisions and clever thought and, and measured deliberations but a simple, we have to save a lot of money and we're going to slash and burn here, there and everywhere. And that's what worries me. It will not, at the end of the day, be a measured, holistic package. It'll just be a load of random cuts. And that could have a terrible impact long term because sure as God made little chickens, we've had four interstate conflicts with the UK and other nations since 1980. A fifth is going to come. I don't know where it's going to come from. But on those days, you want to make sure you've got top-of-the-range men, women and equipment to deal with it. Andrew Brooks, director of the Air League. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Well, we finally have a timetable for the Defence Review. On Monday, we'll hear about the strategic framework. Then on Tuesday, we'll find out exactly what's being cut, or so we think. Kim Sengupta is the Independence Defence Correspondent. He's on the line now. And Christopher Lee is our Defence Analyst and joins me in the studio. Uh, Kim, to you first of all, why do you think it's being delivered in this way next week? Well, it's because there's so many, uh, as they like to put it, stakeholders in this um, 
SDSR, because it's not just, as they keep on pointing out, uh, not just a, a, a defence review, it's, it's defence and security review, and it's under the the auspices of the uh, of the National Security Council, and it's meant to be uh, uh, joined up with the SCO and, and, and um, the Treasury and, and, and all the other government departments. Uh, thus, I think, you know, it, it, it's meant to show a holistic approach that you've got uh, Hagen Fox on, uh, on, on Monday um, uh, setting out what they say the national security strategy underpinning the review. And, and then on, 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 on Tuesday, you've got the Prime Minister. And then, of course, um, uh, we have got uh, George Osborne giving the, the overall uh, comprehensive spending review um, the following day. So, you know, it, it, it will be part of a, of a package. Yeah, you said that it's meant to show a, a sort of joined-up thinking in all of this. I denote a sense of cynicism in your voice. Well, I think if you if you speak to senior officers um, serving and past, and a lot of them have complained uh, about two things. You know, one is the fact that, as one of them said to me, this is not actually turning out to be a defence review, but a savings review. Uh, there, there, there was a great deal of consternation that the Treasury, instead of being um, you know, one of the, uh, the stakeholders, has taken a, a, a lead role. Um, and the pace of, of the review as well is it's going at four times the pace as the, the, the previous one we had a dozen years ago. Um, so it's not so much cynicism, but, 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 but the, the consternation um, uh, which appears to be felt by senior people in the military. Um, Christopher, who do you think is in the driving seat in all of this? Is it the Treasury? Is it the MOD? It's turned out to be the Treasury. I mean, I think the MOD is almost unimportant in the whole thing, quite frankly. Uh, What happens is that if you do it properly, you have, let's say, a government which says, for the next 20, 30, 40 years, this is how we see Britain. This is how we see Britain's role. Then in theory, you go to the MOD and say, well, that's what we'll want to do. Uh, now, can you help us out here? Can you provide the sort of wherewithal for us to do it? Uh, Kim, um, it seems that there's going to be more questions than answers uh, next week. Um, and we are learned today that David Cameron has appointed his own military aid in Downing Street. How do you see this? He's a former Royal Marine commander. How do you see this all unravelling uh, in terms of Liam Fox and his future? Well, I think, I think you know, the, we had this, the, the incident. I, I, uh, I was in, in Kandahar, so I actually uh, missed when it happened, but we had the um, the leaked uh, memo from um, uh, Dr. Fox to uh, Mr. Cameron, which, which um, uh, from what one gathers, was leaked from someone uh, within his his um, his office, and the investigation uh, is still going on. Um, so the relations between between uh, the defence secretary and, and Number Ten is is is, is somewhat. Um, fractious at the moment on a, on a broader political scale, uh, will he keep his job? Well, uh, we don't know, but um, he is one of two right-wingers uh, in the cabinet, uh, he and, and Ian Duncan Smith, and what we are told is that, um, uh, that the Prime Minister would be loath to get rid of him because then he might get lumbered with um, with David Davies. Now, has he actually um, succeeded? Christopher, you're shaking your head there. <laughs> Uh, Kim, I mean, I'll give you a quick thought, Kim. I mean, whoever, the important thing about the review next week, isn't it? When you've got the review, it is not exactly what's going to happen. You've got to have someone who will be overall in charge of implementing it. And why not leave Dr. Fox there? I agree. I agree. Uh, I, I, in fact, I agree with you. I think, I think he will survive. Uh, I think he will survive. Uh, I think you're absolutely right there, Christopher. Uh, I, I don't see any reason why, why, why the Prime Minister should move him. Uh, 
but 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 also I think you know there is certainly a feeling that the Downing Street will be taking a, an even closer grip on on the on the MOD than than they've tried to try to so far. And and if you look at the way this whole thing has been handled, the orchestration of 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 it has been very much um, uh, done by the uh, by Number Ten rather than rather than by the. It's certainly going to be interesting. I'm sure we're going to be talking about this for for many weeks to come, um, eagerly awaiting next week. Kim Sangupta, thank you very much for your time. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, a warning on the cyber warfare threat to Britain. And what now for the parents of the murdered Redcaps? Really, I've got to get on with life now. Um, I've run out of moves. I don't know which way to turn. When David Cameron sits down with NATO's commander in Afghanistan, General David Petraeus, there'll be some very delicate conversations to be had as to how a British hostage died in a botched US rescue operation. Aid worker Linda Norgrove's death was originally blamed on her captors, but it then emerged the US special forces sent to rescue her may well have inadvertently killed her. How did it happen? And why was the early reporting of her death seemingly so wide of the mark? Even now, almost a a week later, new details are still emerging of the circumstances in which Linda died. From Afghanistan, Will Inglis has been looking into the failed attempt to save her. His report starts with first public statement on her death by the Foreign Secretary. It's with deep sadness that I must confirm that Linda Norgrove, the British aid worker who was kidnapped in eastern Afghanistan on the 26th of September, was killed at the hands of her captors during an attempt to rescue her. Foreign Secretary William Hague speaking on Saturday as news of Linda Norgrove's death first broke. The Prime Minister later revealed he may have been wrong about one key detail. General Petraeus has since told me that Linda may not have died at the hands of her captors as originally believed. That evidence and subsequent interviews with the personnel involved suggest that Linda could have died as a result of a grenade detonated by the task force during the assault. Linda was in Afghanistan working on a USAID-funded development project. She was travelling in the notoriously lawless Kunar province when she and three Afghan colleagues were kidnapped at gunpoint. All were released except her. It was her 13th night of captivity when the SEALs went in. The UK government insists that once they discovered her whereabouts, a rescue was the best course of action. Here's William Hague again. Working with our NATO allies, we had received information about the location at which she was possibly being held. And we decided, given the danger that she faced, that the best thing to do was to act on that information. That turns out to be down to fears she could be moved across the border into Pakistan. Afghan journalist Shoaib Sharifi was held hostage in the same area last year and is glad he wasn't rescued. The moment I was taken, my major worry wasn't that these people are going to kill me. My worry was that we were only few minutes away from an American base and I was thinking, oh my God, if there's a rescue operation, these people are aware of this, they are fully armed and uh, there's going to be a 100% chance of being killed. Clear details of special forces operations are never immediately apparent, but to go by the most widely reported, SEAL Team 6 was the unit that went in, with a ground-based element infiltrating the compound and more SEALs fast-roping in from the air. Then everything becomes a little unclear. What is certain is that there was an explosion in the room where she was being held. Initial reports were that the blast had been triggered by her captors. 
but a couple of days after the rescue op, it emerged that helmet camera footage apparently shows a grenade thrown into the room. Colonel Richard Williams led the SAS mission to rescue Norman Kemba in Iraq. What we've got here is uh, an opportunity, uh, tragic as it is, to put an optic over close-quarter battle at night in Afghanistan uh, against very, very violent, uh, suicidal and determined people. There is talk too that instead of a flashbang stun grenade used by the SAS and others to distract hostage takers, it may have been a live fragmentation grenade, almost guaranteed to be fatal in a confined space. The details of exactly what went wrong could take weeks or even months to emerge. Prime Minister David Cameron says he was convinced the rescue was the right decision. I will obviously go over in my own mind a hundred times as to whether it was the right decision, but I profoundly believe it was, given the advice and the information and everything we knew about Linda's dreadful situation uh, having been taken hostage. Downing Street has announced that the British representative in the investigation will be Brigadier Rob Nitch, the head of Joint Force Support for the UK forces in Afghanistan. Will Inglis reporting. Well, The Guardian is now reporting the US SEAL who allegedly threw the grenade could face disciplinary action after apparently failing to tell his superiors what happened until long after the event. It's now reported Linda got away from her captors during the assault and was lying in a fetal position to avoid harm when the grenade was thrown into the room where she was hiding. Our defence analyst Christopher is still here. Christopher Lee. Um, how could an operation like this go so badly wrong? Well, if you're in Kunar province, which I will describe it as notorious, uh, I would describe it as very, very difficult. To, to get it right. To, to get anything like this right. We also had another character there talking about how dangerous the whole thing is because it's not as if they don't know you're coming. That's another point. The important thing is intelligence, intelligence, intelligence. Do, what, You've what got kind to of... manage to grab that intelligence, whether it be airborne or, or, or whatever, to know uh, exactly what's going on. And what kind of intelligence do you think you they, know, they you, had? You, well, they knew where she was being held. Did, do you think they knew exactly where she was being held? Uh, well, you've got to know which room she's in. That is the bit we're not quite sure. There is a standard procedure. If you get captured, if everyone does this sort of uh, sort of training, uh, you're told if there is a rescue operation, throw yourself into a cupboard or a corner. I mean, just get out of the way of anything that might likely to be fu- uh, f- uh, fire. There's also, if you go back to the UK operations, and this wasn't a UK operation directly, or the UK was involved, mm. because the Americans have to come out of the air. But a UK operation is there used to be a sort of uh, a, a, a thing you were told, and that was you throw grenades on the way out not on the way in, and you use stun grenades, etc. So there seems to be the bit of a bodge-bodge. Why do you think that the fragmentation grenades were, were used at all? Well, if it was used, and we still don't know for definite, uh, to definite if, if it was used, um, I think it was just somebody thought they were clearing a room, and therefore they didn't know that she was in there. They didn't know who was in there, because obviously if she was in there, they were not going to throw a fragmentation uh, a, a grenade. It is one of those very, very difficult things, and I think we've got to view it as that. Uh, no heroics. You know, I spent early hours this, mo- this morning watching number 33 of the miners coming up in Chile. That was Hollywood. Mm. And some of it like that ain't Hollywood. Well, uh, it, can I ask you to put on your creative head to, to imagine the conversation that might be going on between General David Petraeus and David Cameron over this? Um, I think it's taken place already. I think um, Petraeus has already spoken to Cameron about it and told him what he's doing about the, uh, about the inquiry. And, and Petraeus has said, we are devastated by this, but, I mean, 
be crude stuff happens. Uh, it, the big conversation this afternoon uh, with Cameron and Petraeus is really going to be about the uh, uh, strategic defence review and then what happens next in Afghanistan. And I'm afraid that Linda is not high on the agenda in these circumstances. Seven years since six Royal Military Policemen were set upon and murdered by a mob in southern Iraq. Now it seems no one will be held to account for their deaths. The only two men accused of the murders were acquitted at the weekend by a court in Baghdad. For the Red Caps families, it seems their long campaign for justice will end in failure. Paul Osborne looks back at the case. It was a routine training mission for the Red Caps in the southern Iraqi town of Majah al-Kabir, but it suddenly went badly wrong. A mob, up to 400 strong, chased the six men into a police station and killed them. At times, the Red Caps families have accused the MOD of doing little or nothing to bring the killers to justice. But earlier this year, it looked like progress had finally been made. Eight men were charged. Then those charges were dropped against all but two of them. And when the case against those two finally came to trial, it lasted just minutes. The prosecution admitting the case against them was paper-thin and itself asking the court to acquit them. Mike Aston's son, Corporal Russell Aston, was one of those killed. To say that I'm disappointed is uh, an understatement. Uh, I was hoping for some sort of closure, but it's been denied. Um, really, I've got to get on with life now. Um, I've run out of moves. I don't know which way to turn. The MOD says it's still determined to get justice for the murdered Redcaps and there are seven outstanding arrest warrants. But Corporal Simon Miller's father, John, thinks Iraq's authorities simply aren't interested. I'm assuming they must, all the, all the evidence they needed, take it forward and it was cut and dry, 95%. And, and to come out within a matter of, I think, less than an hour that it came out, that, um, that they'd been acquitted, I was just beyond words. He says his son and the other Red Caps, let down in life, have now been let down in death as well. Christopher, um, when you think about this case in Iraq, do you think that there just simply isn't an appetite in the Iraqi justice system to see people convicted of these murders? No, there isn't, but also there isn't a system that can cope with it. I mean, one of the things you have to do, and don't look at it in terms of how we would do things Because what's, what's so interesting is the fact that the prosecutors themselves said we don't have enough ed- evidence. It's, it's, it's not having the evidence, and, uh, and you're not going to have the witnesses. You're certainly not going to have the witnesses that are going to survive the sort of court uh, process that we, that, we, that we would understand. Again, we're back to something that we were talking a few minutes ago. And that is, you know, in war, stuff happens. This is the mm. most terrible thing I remember at the time. But we also have to accept that, we're, uh, that this happened in a system which we then said, you get on with it, you run your own country. But we can't demand that they run it as we would. I'm putting myself in the shoes of the, the relatives of those who died, and they're going to want to see something. I mean, OK, they've had an inquest, but they're going to want to see some kind of inquiry. What about a public inquiry? Because you see, you see that in Dabar Hamusa, for example, and his death. Why, why not for our, our soldiers? Who are... Well, you have your coroner's inquiry, a coroner's inquest, but eventually that doesn't get it. Because, you know, if you're, if you're the family and you saw what happened, and everybody knows what happened, you want the guys that actually shot, did the shooting and you want them punished. You want them somebody to say, it was them what done it. You're not going to have it in this case. Now, 
A couple of weeks ago on SITREP, we reported on growing fears Britain could be targeted for cyber attack, rogue nations or terror groups going after vital computer systems. Now the head of GCHQ is warning Britain's power grid and emergency services face a real and credible threat. Ian Lobben says our future economic prosperity rests on being able to defend against high-tech attacks. Uh, Christopher, it uh, might sound a little far-fetched, but the threat is being taken very seriously, isn't it? Yeah. Do you know, your private, not, not the BFPS, your private email, um, I reckon it's possible to get into it in about four seconds. That's how You're I'm joking. It. I'm not joking. I don't joke about these things. Not about your private email. <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, <laughs> no, it don't. is vulnerable. This is vulnerable. Now, something like, that applies to something like 40% of private, and so, in, people think are secure emails, in the United Kingdom, and this is actually low-grade or So you in get the into an thing. email, and then what do you do with it? So it's a, hi- well, a high-profile government email. How do you potentially create some kind of terrorist attack? Well, you may not ter- it may not be a terrorist attack in the sense that we understand it, but what you would do, you, you paralyse systems. So, for example, we've got the inquest running in, in London at the moment on what happened in the July bombings, and the communications were going down then, just supposing you just froze all communications. You couldn't get emergency services there unless you send runners for them. Now, that's a, sm- a small part of it. I'll give you another example of something that's going on at the moment. The Israelis have been testing the idea of fouling up all the communications and the, and the computer systems in the Iranian nuclear yes. services and, and the industry there. That is a perfect example of where we're doing the same thing. Uh, and I suppose, with this in mind, uh, we're going to have some kind of announcement, do you think, next week about a huge amount of money put into defending against this? Yeah, we've got to. It's, it's, it's effectively it's got to be a cyber command. And the UK is quite ahead of it. But I was in Brussels recently talking to somebody in NATO who, who's dealing with this. And he said to me, we get hit every single day here in NATO, somewhere in the region of 140 times a day, People are practicing for the big event, and we saw it when the Russian invasion in Georgia, what happened, they blanked out all the computer systems and walked in. So, Christopher, I'm just never, ever going to switch my email on ever again after this conversation. No, nor your mobile, I wouldn't. (laughs) Christopher, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for your time this week. That is it for this week. Next time, we'll finally know exactly what's in the Strategic Defence and Security Review, and in a special edition of SITREP, we'll look at what it means for all the forces and ask what it'll mean for Britain's standing on the world stage. Until next time, thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot, goodbye.